Good morning. Please open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 4 as we return to our study, our main study of 1 Peter after a brief six sermon series on the book of the prophet Micah in the interlude of the summer when many people were here and there and everywhere. And it's nice to see you back and to see you in the congregation. And it will be nice, I, I think, to be back in First Peter also. I want to briefly review just a couple of things about the book or the letter uh, of First Peter to help us get up to speed and continue on in our study of it. And I want to remind you that <clears throat> the Apostle Peter in this letter, he regularly switches back and forth between two things. He keeps moving back and forth between the gospel truths of who Jesus is and what he has done for us and won for us. That's one thing. And then he switches over to how we ought to live in light of that. And so he keeps repeating the same pattern. Jesus has suffered and entered into glory. And then to our part, we also ought to follow his example through suffering and enter into the glory that he has won for us. As he lived innocently and obediently and endured suffering, so we ought to live innocently and obediently and endure suffering because that's the path that we walk on the way to the glory that he has won for us. And when we say it's the path that we walk unto that glory, we're saying it's of the way that Jesus has won for us and purchased for us. It's not us earning our salvation. It's living out what Jesus has already accomplished for us and accomplishes through us. Peter has also regularly described Christians and the church as the new Israel, as the perfect Israel. He's described us as exiles in Babylon. We are not yet at our home. Jesus has entered into the glory and won it for us, but we have not yet entered into that glory. We are waiting for our inheritance and being prepared for it as it is prepared for us. He described us as the temple, Jesus being the the chief cornerstone, the prophets, the foundation, but we being the living stones that comprise it and build it up and among which the spirit dwells and exercises his power. Most recently in our study of chapter four, the last thing that we saw was Peter's exhortation that the end of all things is at hand. Remember that the end of the world, Jesus' return is like a, a huge mountain that's in front of us. It's so big that you can't help but see it. There it is. The end is near. But because it's so big, it's difficult to discern the distance that we have to that mountain. The closer you get to it, the bigger it becomes, and the more you wonder, how far away is this mountain? Is it close? Is it far? It seems close because it's so big and I see it, but it seems far because we keep getting closer and it bigger, but we're not there yet. Peter wants Christians to live as though the end is indeed at hand. There it is. It's the certainty of the end that is impressed upon us and indeed all people. And Peter said that the way in which we ought to live in light of that is he said, earnestly love one another. Keep loving one another earnestly, he said. Persevere in love for one another. He said, be hospitable to one another. We don't just love one another, we spend time together. And he also said that as Jesus has given gifts to your church, to, to you, use those gifts to minister to one another. Now to transition into our text this morning, let me 
ask you the, a question. If you are living in light of the end, if you're persevering in a holy life on that path of innocence and obedience, even despite suffering, uh, what's going to happen to you until the end? If you're living a holy life to the end, what will happen to you until the end, in that in-between time? Well, Peter tells us what's going to happen, and he prepares us for it in verses 12 through 19, which will be the focus of our text or our study this morning. Let's read 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19, to see what it's like to live in light of the end and unto the end. God says through the Apostle Peter, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. In 1 John, how does John describe Christians and not Christians? He says there is the children of God, Christians, and the children of the devil. The children of God and the children of the devil. How did the children of God become the children of God? God rescued them and freed them and took them by force and power and victory from the family of the devil, from the devil's children. And guess what? He's not happy about that. Satan does not like it when his goods are plundered, when his children are taken from his kingdom and translated to another, the kingdom of the beloved son. Which means that if we live the Christian life, we ought to be ready and prepared and aware that Satan will not go quietly, that he will not leave us alone. We ought to expect opposition and indeed persecution if we live a holy life in light of the end and to the end. And these verses prepare us to do so, to live in a persevering obedience and faithfulness to the very end. Let's look at five points to structure our outline And these five points come from the commands that Peter gives us in this text, as well as the reasons or explanations that he adds to support those commands. So each of these five points will include at least one command, if not more, as well as an explanation or a reason that goes with it. Number one, do not be surprised, but rejoice. Do not be surprised, but rejoice. What is it that should not surprise us? Peter says there's a fiery trial 
that burns among you or comes upon you, and we should not be surprised by it. What is this fiery trial that will come upon us and which ought not to surprise us? Well, first off, Paul, uh, not Paul, Peter, is making a slight contrast. Earlier in this, uh, in this book, in chapter 4, verse 4, Peter said that unbelievers are surprised when we do not go along with them in their flood of debauchery. So think of the course of this world and sin and sinners doing what they like to do, namely sin, as a river with a current, a flood, a strong current of debauchery, of sin, giving yourself freely to sin. And sinners are surprised. They say, come on in, it's great. And the Christian says, no thanks. Or let's say they're caught in the current and they're just constantly swimming against it. Peter now is saying to us, as they're surprised when you don't join in their flood of debauchery, you should not be surprised when this brings a fiery trial upon you. To live a holy life in a wicked world will ultimately bring trials upon you. Those people with whom you will not join in their sin are not going to respond well. They're going to put pressure on you. They're going to criticize you. They're going to malign you, and they're going to mistreat you. They're going to be unkind to you. They're not going to like you. You are going to suffer as a result of your stand for holiness, and you're swimming against the current of the flood of debauchery. Ultimately, the fiery trial that comes upon Christians is the temptation to abandon Jesus Christ. The temptation to deny and abandon Jesus Christ. And this temptation comes from various sources that exert various kinds of pressure on Christians. The ones who say, come on into the water, it's great, you'll love it. Or the ones who are upset and outraged when we do not. Instead of being surprised that the world hates us for living a holy life, Peter says we ought to rejoice. But you may ask the question, I don't understand, Peter, how fiery trial and rejoicing go together. Rejoice at the fiery trial? Well, no. It's not the fiery trial in itself that you rejoice in. He says that it is to test you. It is a fiery trial that is a means to an end. The fiery trial is there to purify you and to, to prove you to be genuine and true. So it's not the fiery trial that you rejoice in. You rejoice in the opportunity to grow and to be purified by God. But even more so, Peter adds a reason. Here's your reason. Because if you share in Christ's sufferings, you will share in his glory. If you share in Christ's sufferings, you will share in his glory. These are his words. Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. When we suffer for following Jesus, we therefore partake of his suffering. He's not saying that you feel what Jesus felt on the cross, that you feel divine wrath or, or God's justice against wickedness. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying that your participation in the sufferings of Christ is the way that Jesus was mistreated 
by sinners and pressured and tempted by the devil. And all kinds of enemies were attempting to dissuade him from his holy mission and his life of obedience. And when we follow him, we also will be pressured and persecuted and tried to be dissuaded from following him. We share in his suffering by imitating his example. And as he suffered and entered into glory, so also we who persevere in faith to the end, relying on Christ and refusing to deny him, will also enter into that glory. So we see the fire as the way through, as the way out. The fire is something that if I persevere through and it tests me and proves me to be genuine, the other side of it is glory. Isn't this one of the main messages of the book of Revelation? The book of Revelation, again and again, if we sum sum up its teaching, says comfort the saints so that they can endure persecution because Jesus has conquered death and Jesus will conquer all our enemies. And for the Christian to die in faith is to conquer with Christ. So do not deny Jesus. Be faithful unto death and you too will receive the crown of glory. Rest for a little while, for a little while, dear departed saints. The book of Revelation is teaching Christians to endure trials and be faithful unto death because Jesus has conquered. That's what Peter is teaching also here in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. Go through the fiery trial. Don't be surprised by it, but rejoice that on the other side of it is glory and that Jesus has already gone ahead of you. And so therefore you are not uh, sailing uncharted waters, but rather you are walking the very path that Jesus has said, come with me, come after me, come along with me. He has sanctified this path for us. We partake of his suffering and we also will partake of his glory. Now we shouldn't be befuddled by the, the fiery trial and what it is when Peter's actually mentioned it before in chapter 1. If you turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1, look at verses 6 and 7, where Peter has just described our salvation and inheritance in Jesus, and he says, In this you rejoice what Jesus has done for you. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So notice various trials and afflictions that test and refine and purify our faith and result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the same thing in 1 Peter 4. Don't be surprised at the diverse and necessary trials that come upon you, though they feel like fire, it is a purification. And it is our duty to respond to that with faithfulness under trial, which brings glory to Christ and ends in the glory that Christ has won for us. Do not be surprised, but rejoice, because you too are on the path of Jesus Christ. You too are carrying your cross and following him. You too are sharing in his sufferings, and therefore you will share in his glory. So we do not rejoice in the fire itself. We rejoice in the glory that is beyond the fire, knowing that Jesus has overcome everything. And if we follow him faithfully, we too will arrive at the glory that he has won for us. 
but the trial and the test is, do you really want to subject yourself to that fire? Do you really want to swim against the current? Come on, it's great, just let go. They're trying to control you. They're trying to get things from you. The, relig- the church is just, it's just a man-made religion. Look, the pastors get paid from this. They're in it for themselves. They're living the good life. They're corrupt. Look at the division of doctrine. Look at immorality in the leadership of churches. Look at how divided the church is. Look at all, it's just a man-made thing. They just made it up. They want to control you. Live however you want. There is no God. There's nothing at all. It's just this life and then the darkness of nothingness afterwards. So eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Come on, it's great. It's love. Just love everyone. Don't judge. Don't hate. Just love. Why can't you just love everybody? Why are you so hating? Why are you so judgy and judgmental? The Christian may say, I, I, I'm not those things. I don't want to be those things. It is, there is corruption and there is immorality and there is division of doctrine. And this does look like some other religions in the world in certain ways and, and so on and so forth. There's all kinds of pressure. And then there's also... It's so much easier if you just give up. Pastor Campbell's going to talk about this in his sermon later today, so I'll stop. (laughs) I just realized that. No more. There's pressure to abandon and deny Jesus. Fiery trials of different kinds. We don't rejoice at the fire. We rejoice at what's beyond the fire. Because if you partake of Christ's suffering, you partake of his glory. Secondly, Point two of five. Number two, do not suffer for evil, but for good. Do not suffer for evil, but for good. We're going to skip verse 14 for a moment. Look at verse 15. Peter says, but in contrast, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Not everything that Christians suffer is Christian suffering. If you get pulled over for speeding, You're not being persecuted because you're a Christian. You got pulled over because you were speeding. If don't do the crime, if you can't do the time, it's not persecution for a Christian to be punished for civil crimes. And in fact, to suffer civil penalties as a Christian is shameful. And it's contrary to our Christian witness when the very teaching of Christianity is to be submissive to authorities, to be the best citizens, to honor the king, to pray for the emperor. And so therefore to live as unlawful citizens is to contradict our witness, to make ourselves hypocrites and to live with a shame rightfully. It's not a badge of honor, it's a badge of shame to be a criminal in society. So Peter is saying, Listen, going against the course of the world does not mean that you don't have to follow the common laws of society. You still need to be a good citizen. Don't suffer for evil, but rather suffer for good. And the reason I've already mentioned is that these things are shameful and contrary to our Christian witness. Peter has actually mentioned this three times already, or this is the third time I'll ever so briefly mention them. Chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Peter says, What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? He's saying there's no perseverance in enduring punishment for things you did wrong. 
He said in uh, chapter 3, verse 17, it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So this is the third time Peter is saying, don't suffer for sin, that's shameful, rather suffer for good. We should not make ourselves into martyrs if we're punished by the civil magistrate for civil crimes. It's not Christian suffering. If if people don't like you, forget crimes, if people don't like you, don't blame it on your identity as a Christian if you're just an unlikable person. I'm being persecuted. Maybe you're just sour and bitter and unkind, or maybe your coworkers don't like you, not because you're a Christian, but because you don't do your job well. So don't make yourself into a martyr and think that everything you suffer is Christian suffering because you're a Christian. Christian suffering is, as we'll see in a moment, and has, have seen, it's in the name of the Lord. It's not in the name of the Lord to be a bad worker or to be an annoying person that people don't like or to do crimes and to be punished for them. If we suffer for evil that we do, we lament it and we repent of it. We say, I'm sorry. We submit ourselves to the consequences and we vindicate ourselves through a proper repentance. And we have right remorse that we've brought shame on Jesus by being contrary to our, uh, to our witness. And we repent of it, and we move on. So do not suffer for evil, but for good. Number three, do not be ashamed, but glorify God. Do not be ashamed, but glorify God. Here we're looking at verses 14 and 16. Peter says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Verse 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Peter tells us that when we suffer as Christians, that is, in the name or for the name of Jesus Christ, there's no shame in this. No shame whatsoever. And he gives us three reasons. He says, because by suffering for Christ, you are blessed. We mentioned last week, still in Micah, that Jesus pronounced a blessing on those who suffer for his name's sake when we are maligned and mistreated. Blessed are you when they mistreat you for my name's sake, said Jesus. So why should I even rejoice in suffering and not find any shame but glorify God because when I suffer for Christ's sake I am blessed it is a blessing it is an honor to suffer for Jesus the second reason is that God's spirit rests upon us when we suffer for Christ's sake it is a consolation and we can glorify God because we know we're not alone I'm suffering for Christ's sake. That must mean that God has abandoned me. He has abandoned me to this suffering. No, to the contrary. Au contraire, mon ami. Al contrario. Quite the opposite. God is with us precisely when we're suffering and we remain faithful in that suffering. Do you remember, uh, this this is another allusion to the Old Testament. Do you remember what happened after the Israelites uh, committed adultery with the golden calf at Mount Sinai, God, was, God said, you go to Canaan, I'm not going with you. You go, I'm not going. And it says in the Old Testament, it says, and when Israel heard this disastrous word, they all wailed and lamented. 
Because if God will not go with us, if his spirit will not rest upon our camp, why would we go anywhere? That, that's just suicide. We cannot go without God. And so Peter here is using that imagery to tell us when we pass through the deserts of suffering or the wilderness of suffering, it is God who is with us. His spirit rests upon us as it rested upon the tabernacle. And when God's spirit was with the people, they were willing to walk through the deserts. They were willing to go into the dry and waterless places. They were willing to go because Canaan was on the other side. So also for us, why should we endure suffering for Christ's sake and in his name? Because God's spirit rests upon us. We don't have to order divine help and then wait three to five business days for it to come. The spirit rests upon us at all times. And that means that in suffering, we have even more of a closer walk with God and a greater dependence upon his power and his grace. There are times when we encounter trials and we think, how can this possibly be overcome? Or how can I possibly overcome this? And in those moments, we say the spirit of glory and of God rests upon me, dwells within me, and I am able to do this by God's power. I can persevere faithfully under suffering. And when you realize that, you glorify God. You glorify God because you're blessed in your suffering. You glorify God because his spirit rests upon you. The third reason is that it validates that we are Christians. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him glorify God in that name. If people persecute you because you're a Christian, as a Christian, it has a kind of paradoxical confirmation to you that you are a Christian. If, if you're in the flood of debauchery, if you're following the current of the course of the world, then that tells you one thing. And if everyone is perfectly content and happy to be around you and give themselves over to sin and they don't even think twice about it, there's a problem there. But when your stand for holiness, when your stand for Christ becomes a standing and a swimming against the current and that's viewed by others and opposed by others and recognized by others, it becomes a confirmation and a validation that you are a Christian. In so doing, we're not ashamed, but reassured that we are Christians. We're not suffering because we're annoying to other people. We're suffering because we're standing for holiness. And we have to glorify God as the apostles did in the book of Acts. They glorified God that they were considered worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. And it's such a neat way how in Acts and here in First Peter, the New Testament, the early church, takes the, the epithet, the name Christian, which is initially um, a jeer, a taunt, and turns it into a badge of honor. You Christians, you people of that Jewish Christ, you, you Christians, it's not a nice name early on. They say, I love that name. They put it on a medal, they put it around their, their necks, and they say, Christian. Christian, 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 amen. I love to be known by the name of Jesus Christ. I am a Christian. And Peter calls us Christians here. It is a validation that we are Christians when we suffer for Jesus' sake, for Christ's sake. We say this, God, I give you the glory that I have not been excluded, but included in the sufferings of Christ, knowing that I will share 
in his glory. If we are exempted and excluded from Jesus' suffering and there's no opposition for our stand for holiness, that would be an invalidation of sorts of our Christianity. But those who do suffer as a Christian for Christ have their Christianity validated and we glorify God. Number four, obey the gospel. You may be prone to think that one believes the gospel, and you do, and that one does not therefore believe, uh, obey the gospel, but you do. <laughs> you obey the gospel by believing it. You may say, well, where's the command to obey the gospel? In 1 Peter 4, 12 to 19, look at verses 17 through 18. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And, quoting from Proverbs, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Nothing is stated in the imperative form here as a command, but if the gospel can be disobeyed, then the gospel is to be obeyed, therefore obey the gospel. Let me explain Peter's argument and come back to the command to obey. We've said that the sufferings and the trials and the afflictions in this life are those which God permits as a way of purifying fires that prepare us for glory. So God is busy purifying his people, purifying his church, and he's using fiery trials to do so as he prepares us for glory. This is God's judgment on his house. It is a judgment of discipline. It is not a judgment of condemnation or punishment for sin, but rather it is a purification. It is a sanctification of his people. It is a purification against sin, surely, but it is not, you must suffer because you have sinned. It is, a purif it is removing sin from us, sanctifying us, purifying and preparing us for glory. So as the nations, as the unbelieving, see the church put under fire that purifies it, and they see God disciplining and training up his church, they ought to learn a lesson. And the lesson that they ought to learn is, first off, God makes no peace with sin. He's purifying his people of their sins. He's sanctifying them. But their sins are forgiven in the blood of Jesus Christ. The one way in which God makes peace with sinners. And so these Christians, who are under a fiery trial of judgment now that purifies them, when they arrive at the final judgment, they will be forgiven and vindicated. Because their sins are forgiven in the blood of Jesus Christ, God has been purifying and sanctifying them, and that purification reaves, re, excuse me, arrives at its perfection upon death. And so in the final judgment, there will be no judgment for them. Rather, they will be vindicated and forgiven. They have experienced their judgment of discipline and training and purification now. And there will be no more fire for them then. The lesson, therefore, is for the unbeliever, 
who's not under any fire right now, they sin as they want. They sin as much as they want. They sin how they want. Yes, God restrains sin through common grace, but they're given over to sin without repentance, without remorse. They're not under any fire of purification right now. The question then becomes from Peter, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? For those who go to the judgment without the forgiving blood of Jesus Christ and without the purifying discipline, judge, judgmental discipline or disciplinary judgment of God prior to that final judgment. They go to final judgment on their own with no forgiveness and no preparation. What will be the outcome? They should have obeyed the gospel. So the reason is that those who go into judgment with the full weight and guilt of their own sin and nothing to take away or lessen the magnitude of it will receive an infinitely worse judgment than that judgment which believers do receive here in this life. We receive a purification, a sanctification in this life. And that's it in terms of God's judgment on us. But the unbeliever has no shield, no diminishing, nothing whatsoever to shield them from God's judgment that's poured out upon the wicked. What will become the out what will be the outcome, Peter asks? And he doesn't answer the question. That you're supposed to logically infer or deduce it will be infinitely worse for them, a different kind of purification. For now, God is separating sin from his saints. But at that time, God will separate the sinners from his saints. And they will be sent away and banished forever to that lake of fire, that outer darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That weeping and gnashing of teeth is an expression that is used several times by Jesus to communicate two things, anguish of soul, weeping, and anguish of a resurrected body, gnashing of teeth. You gnash your teeth when the doctor says, this is going to hurt, brace yourself. You gnash your teeth because it hurts, because it's painful. And those who are cast into the lake of fire in the outer darkness, they weep and they gnash their teeth because they have an unending misery and torment of body and soul forever and ever, which is maximized and it is augmented by Jesus' sentence of depart from me as they are separated in that moment of judgment. Not sin separated from saints as we have a judgment now, but sinners separated from saints forever and ever. What will be the outcome? Do you think of the gospel as a command? It is. The truths of the gospel demand a response. There's no neutrality. There's no, I'm waiting to figure it out. There's no, I'm trying to see or I'm wondering. There's no agnosticism. I'm agnostic. I'm just not sure. I, I'm non-committal to anything. I don't, I don't hate Christianity. I don't deny Christianity. I just, I just can't affirm it. Not to affirm is to deny. Not to believe is to disbelieve. Because not to believe is to refuse to obey the gospel. The gospel is the good news. News tells you something. Here's what you need to know, that God became man, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, 
and he lived a perfect, obedient, and innocent life. And as a perfect, innocent, obedient sacrifice, he gave up his life on the cross as a substitute for sinners in our place. And he rose from the dead on the third day, vindicated to bring forgiveness and righteousness to all those who trust in him. And he ascended to heaven, and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and he is coming again to judge, to raise, and to judge the living and the dead. Not to believe that is to disbelieve that. Not to believe that is to disobey the gospel. And at the judgment seat, one of the sins for which you will be convicted and condemned will be disbelief and disobedience of the gospel, which is worse it is to, to contemn the son, that is to treat him as a thing to be despised, to disobey the gospel. Is there any sin greater than to hear the beauty and the preciousness and the truth of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, and to say, I will have none of that. I don't want him. You will face him. You will stand before him. It is he who will judge there will be no mercy. There will be no compassion at that time. This is the time of mercy and compassion. This is the time to obey the gospel. Turn back to 1 Peter 1, where we see a different outcome for those who do believe. The outcome of those who do not obey the gospel is eternal torment of resurrected body and soul, given over to sin. But what is the outcome of faith? 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9. Though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Two outcomes that Peter presents to us, the same word, same concept, the outcome meaning the destiny, the termination. There's the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel, and there's the outcome of those who believe, the outcome of faith, which is salvation, and joy inexpressible filled with glory. When the wheat and the chaff are separated both get shaken. We're going through the shaking now. <laughs> the fiery trials. God's judgment on his house that disciplines and purifies us. But when that shaking is over, the chaff have been separated. And what is done to the chaff is burned. Separated and burned. We must endure the winnowing process for now. But that will come to an end as the, the grain is then put into the storehouse, into the barn where it ought to be. Two outcomes. The outcome of faith, salvation, and joy inexpressible in glory inexpressible. And the outcome of disobedience and disbelief, eternal torment and unbearable judgment. Fifthly and lastly, entrust your soul by persevering in faith and obedience. Entrust your soul by persevering in faith 
and obedience. Let's read verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Notice the therefore. This is a concluding statement that takes into account the preceding arguments. Knowing that you share in Christ's suffering and therefore you will share in his glory. Knowing that it is honorable to suffer for Christ and that God blesses us and is with us. Knowing that the outcome of our faith is salvation, we who have believed the gospel. Therefore, entrust your soul to God. But what does it mean to entrust your soul to God? It means to persevere in faith and obedience, trusting that whatever happens to us along the way, God is with us and will preserve us and protect us. Entrusting your soul to God doesn't mean let go and let God, like some kind of passive close your eyes and wait for something to happen. It means set your eyes on what is ahead of you, walk the path even through the fiery trial, persevere in faith and obedience, trusting in him along the way. That is how you persevere, trusting him and obeying him. But Peter gives us reinforcing arguments to persuade us to entrust our souls to him. He tells us that God is a faithful creator, and he emphasizes three things, God's faithfulness, his power, and his sovereignty. His faithfulness, his power, and his sovereignty. We suffer according to his will. God is not saying, oops, they're suffering. I should have protected them from that. No, God has permitted these things according to his sovereign wisdom as fiery trials that purify us. So I know that my suffering is not devoid of or apart from God's sovereign permission. And he is faithful in this. His purpose is never to hurt me or to harm me or to, to um, detract, but rather to instruct and to sanctify and prepare me. And he's powerful. He can help me to get all the way through Yes, but pastor, you don't understand the complicated nature of my trial. Or pastor, you don't understand how difficult this is for me. God is more powerful than your afflictions. God is more powerful than your trials. God is greater than the fire. Trust in him. Commend your soul to him, his faithfulness, his power, and his sovereignty. His power comes from calling him creator. Remember, all of the trials and afflictions are created things but he's the creator. Trust his faithfulness, his power, his sovereignty, and entrust your soul. Peter's writing to people who may die under Emperor Nero. They may be put up on stakes covered in pitch and burned to death, but they can entrust their souls to God because even if man destroys their body, God will preserve their souls and give them a new body. Entrusting your soul means being faithful unto death no matter what, persevering in faith and obedience by trusting in him, or trusting in him by persevering in faith and obedience. In our day, we very likely will not be faced with that kind of threat. The Christian is not threatened so much with violence in the United States of America in 2023 so much as seduction. Abandon Jesus. Deny Jesus through a seductive insensibility 
just, just stop caring. The internet has desensitized people to many, many, many different things. Acts of gruesome violence and hatred and all kinds of perversion and wickedness have been so proliferated that they've become commonplace. And those things don't really affect people. They do, ultimately. But people are so insensible, so desensitized and numb to so many things. And one of those things that we can become desensitized is not the horrific nature of sin in this world, but we can become desensitized to the Christian faith. If it's only ever something that we debate on internet forums, you can just stop caring because it's annoying. It gets tiresome. I'm just tired of debating this all the time with people. Just, you just give it up. Or that's all Christians do is they debate, so you give it up. Or the, the seduction of wanting the pleasures of this life. That's more Campbell's sermon. I'll, I'll leave that. But don't just think, I need to be faithful unto death. That's like telling your wife, I'll die for you. But you won't help with things around the house. Uh, it, it doesn't, what good does that do you to make this extreme promise of something you'll never have to do? So also here, we entrust our souls to God because no matter what, we trust him. But recognize that the things that you will be threatened with and the things that you will face are likely not the death of your body, but rather the seduction of your heart. It will be things like, why doesn't the family want to get together at my house? Well, it's because they can't get drunk there. It's because they can't say and do whatever they want at your house. And so they want to get together somewhere else where they feel freer to do that. Why don't my coworkers invite me to things? It's because you're, it may be, because you're a Christian. Again, you could just be annoying or a bad worker. But it's those kinds of things. Well, I want to be included. Why don't the popular girls at school talk to me? Or why don't the popular guys at school include me? Why am I excluded? I want to be included. That's the seduction oftentimes. I want to be viewed as a good person by other people. I want them to like me. All kinds of pressures. God says, don't be afraid of your family. Who says, that's ridiculous. You won't come to the family gathering because you're going to church. Are you nuts? Is that a cult? What's wrong with you? Don't you love your mom? Don't you love your dad? It's my birthday, son. Mijo, it's my birthday. We, we chuckle. But those are the real kinds of pulls that actually we experience in this life. Can't you just work? Everyone else is pulling extra shifts. Everyone else is putting in extra time. Why can't you just do it? Someone else is going to have to work if you don't. It's just a little bit. It's just this once. Come on. Do they own you? What's wrong with you? Can't you just do this for us? We gave you a raise. We gave you, I promoted you. These are the kinds of things. Entrust your soul to God. He is powerful. He is faithful. He is sovereign. Do not be afraid. Be free. And do not be afraid. We suffer according to God's will, knowing his purpose is to sanctify us, to prove us, to prepare us, and to bring us to the glory won by Christ. And therefore we can suffer cheerfully with joy and without any shame. We rejoice and we are glad when his glory will be revealed. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have converted what others would consider shameful into honor. We thank you that you are with us 
in our suffering, that you bless us in our suffering, that you purify us through our suffering, that you are sovereign over our suffering. We praise you. We praise your power that is able to overcome things that we think are humanly impossible, temptations that we think are too strong. We praise you and we thank you that you are God and that we are your children and that you love us. And even this judgment that you send upon us and permit to come upon us in this life is merely but a preparation for a glory that outweighs and outshines everything in this life. Help us to entrust our souls to you in faithful obedience, in persevering faith. Help us to be strong, not just against those great threats of violence, but to be strong against those subtle seductions that come our way, even from those closest to us. Help us to see them, to resist them, and to be loyal to Jesus above and before any and all things. Help us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen.